Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, it's over for now, but the last day of this legislative session, Sine Die was... As expected, full of surprises, or maybe not, we'll recap what took place less than 24 hours ago and find out what bills are headed to the governor's desk. WAB politics reporters Raul Bali and Sam Greenglass will give us all the details. And a controversial measure Republican lawmakers passed could place restrictions on transgender kids playing school sports. Georgia Democratic Senator Kim Jackson joins me to talk about the surprise vote. And since Georgia is now labeled the most important swing state this election year, We'll let the debating, campaigning, and tweeting begin. So from federal to statewide to district races, we'll find out why Georgia is so key. All that's ahead. But first, this. Be prepared for severe weather as a storm moves across the southeast today. Dave Natler is a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Peachtree City. There's a risk for uh, some damaging winds and maybe even a few tornadoes, especially on the south side of, of Metro through the afternoon hours today. It looks like Things do improve by the end of the day before sun, sunset, so that's good news. But definitely through about uh, 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the risk for heavy rain and, and some damaging winds and possibly a tornado uh, will be there. The worst of the storm is expected to stay south of Metro Atlanta, but he warns anywhere in the metro should stay prepared. For, anyone in the metro should stay prepared for severe conditions, and of course that means flooding. We could see about one to two inches uh, across the area through this afternoon, but it's kind of falling over like a three to six hour period. So there will be some localized flooding of like creeks and small streams, but we don't anticipate to be anything more than just minor flooding and nuisance flooding and poor drainage areas and things in areas like that. Current forecasts show another storm coming through Metro Atlanta tomorrow afternoon and early. And Natler says, yo, get used to it. March, April, and into early May are our peak and severe weather season across the area. So this is the time of year where we are. We do anticipate seeing stronger winds and tornadoes and, of course, heavy rain with flooding and, and a lot of lightning. That's what we typically see from one year to the next. Uh, so, yeah, we hope that everybody's ready for that and not taken off guard. Yay. In other news, Georgia lawmakers are agreeing on a plan to create a flat state income tax, cutting taxes by more than a billion dollars. Now, the bill heading to Governor Brian Kemp's desk would create a flat tax beginning in 2024, which would gradually decrease to 4.99 percent. Now, to keep from raising taxes on lower incomes, the measure would increase exemptions covering the amount someone earns before paying income tax. There was no formal revenue estimate prepared for what would be a major rewrite of the state tax code. And the final version of the bill passed with bipartisan support in both chambers of the legislature during the final hours of the session last night. In other news, state regulators are considering Georgia Power's plan to retire its coal units and boost solar power. As Molly Samuel reports, the hearings continue for a second day as as climate scientists again urge people around the world to act fast to phase out fossil fuels. At the first day of hearings with the State Public Service Commission, Georgia Power officials explained their decision to phase out coal. Jeffrey Grubb is Georgia Power's Director of Resource Policy and Planning. We just don't see a lot of positives in the future for the coal fleet. He said coal doesn't compete well economically with other energy options. And looking ahead, environmental regulations could make coal more risky. Plus, increasingly, companies moving to Georgia want to know that they'll be able to use renewable energy. The U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report this week saying nations need to make faster and bigger cuts to greenhouse gas emissions. 
In the United States, the utility sector is the second biggest contributor to climate change. Molly Samuel, WABE News. The longest-serving lawmaker in Georgia's State House said goodbye to his colleagues on the last day of the 2022 legislative session. Calvin Smyrie, a Columbus Democrat, shed a tear as he bid farewell yesterday morning. Today is more difficult because after 48 years of serving in this chamber, I will not be returning to this hallowed chamber for another legislative session. President Biden has nominated Smyrie to be the ambassador to the Dominican Republic. Smyrie has been involved in so many of Georgia's major policy milestones, including changing the state flag, establishing the Hope Scholarship, and most recently passing Georgia's hate crimes law. And finally, he is back. Quote, as of right now, I feel like I'm going to play. Close quote. That's the word from Tiger Woods about playing in this weekend's Masters at Augusta National. Now, Woods talked about coming back during a press conference held earlier today. My recovery has been good. I've been very excited about how I've recovered each and every day, and that, that's been the, the, the challenge. That's why I came up here and, and tested out for 27 holes, because I was able to play uh, 27 holes that day um, and at home testing it. But it's the recovery. You know, how, how am I going to get all the you know, swelling out and recover for the next day? And uh, my team has been fantastic and worked very hard. Um, so we've got another day of nine more holes, and uh, then come game time. Woods crashed back on February 23rd of last year. He was driving and veered over a medium and down the side of a hill on a coastal road just outside of Los Angeles. Woods' injuries were so severe that it required a lot of surgeries to his leg, ankle, and foot. In fact, doctors thought Woods' leg would need to be amputated. The Masters gets underway Thursday, of course, in Augusta. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Sunny Die has come and gone, and with some surprises, eh, kind of. When we spoke, here how, here's how Raul Bali, one half of our WABE politics team, described the final hours of the legislative session. So, Raul, describe last night, typical Sunny Die and all the years you've covered the Georgia legislature. Not typical at all, Rose. It was really a brutally slow start. I mean, just reporters, we kept looking at each other like, hey, when is this When is this party going to get started? When it's going to get going? And, you know, we had Calvin Smyrie give his, his, his farewell address. We had the big mental health uh, reform package signing. That was like at 1.30. And we felt like, you know, the reporters are looking at each other like, when is this going to get going? Then it's 5 o'clock. Then it's 8 o'clock at night. And you're like, when is this going to get going? And then... It was like, you know, the bills were like kites in a hurricane and they were just flying left and right. And things were being added to this, that and the other. And um, and then it was just this grand, messy finish. I mean, I, I think my tweet said it best. You know, we've just adjourned. Now we're trying to figure out what just happened. So let's go back here, because in that time from when earlier in the morning to when they when the action got started, as you put it, are lawmakers, are they in meetings? Are they debating on the floors? What's happening? So it depends on the bill, you know, medical cannabis, they were working, you know, on a conference committee in the background, tax reform, that package, they were working in the background in a conference committee. Others, very clearly, there were deals trying to be made. And it looks like that's what happened with with the girls in sports bill. It looks very clear that there was some deal worked in the background because there was a procedural move that failed. And this suddenly went away. It looks very clear that with that, there was a deal of let's just attach it to the device of education concept bill 
and just ram it right through at the end. Yeah, we're going to have more on that in just a moment. But I also want to get your thoughts on, we know the budget had to be passed. Obviously, they have to do that. That went out without any shenanigans. <laughs> no real shenanigans when it comes to the budget. But it was just another one of those where reporters are looking at each other like, it's done. They could just knock it out. Uh, it did get eventually knocked out. And and again, the big things are the $5,000 raise for, for state and university employees and and two thousand dollars for for teachers, uh, public school teachers. So that the budget got done. It's on the way to the governor for him to sign. And we should note that the Mental Parity Act that reached its final hurdle, which was being signed by Governor Kemp yesterday as well. That was part of the real dichotomy yesterday. Is you have Republicans and Democrats, and you have this big bipartisan moment in the middle of the day, it was a 1.30 bill signing yesterday. And then all the way on the other end, just kind of that blast at the end of, of bills at the end of the day. But, you know, the big thing that I took away from the mental health parity signing is there's nearly $200 million. And a lot of that money is going to get to work in this summer. Mm -hmm. There are going to be changes this summer. There's going to be more money for providers and in, the, in for outpatient beds and emergency beds. So some of this is going to be kicking in relatively quickly. And then there's more money down the line, those forgivable education loans uh, for new providers, and then money for these co-responder teams of police officers and behavioral health professionals. So things, yes, everyone says things are going to take time. You can't improve Georgia's low standing in mental health uh, care quickly. But you're going to see money going out the door and efforts going out the door this year. Well, Raul, let's talk about some measures that did not make it. What happened with casino and gambling here? Or They just didn't have the votes. Mm -hmm. Plain and simple, Rose, they didn't have the votes. To get it on the ballot, you need two-thirds. And for you know whether it's you know social conservatives who are never going to vote for it, or Democrats or Republicans who care about where the money goes, they just didn't have the votes in the end, you know, whether it was only online sports betting or horse racing or casinos, whatever it was, they just didn't have the votes to get it done. And then what about there was an abortion related measure as well, Raul? So this is legislation that deals with a, a decision made by the Biden administration. This would have specifically banned the mailing of uh, abortion inducing drugs and also made women go in person, get an exam. It also would have banned the distribution of those drugs at public schools and public colleges. In the end, the bill never got out of committee in the House. And, and I asked uh, Speaker Ralston about that, and he just said two things. He said, one, they kind of just ran out of time and that there wasn't interest in the bill, something I hadn't heard. I mean, I'd heard you know quite a bit of interest, but in the end, it just didn't make it. And medical marijuana. Let me tell you something. That was absolutely the messiest bill on signy die. Real quick, short story. A couple of years ago, uh, medical cannabis oil was, was made legal. The possession of it was made legal in the state of Georgia, but you couldn't legally buy it. So, mm -hmm. so thousands of Georgians who really need this oil generally were getting it through illegal means to get you know low thc oil and there's been this whole process to have licenses given to homegrown producers of low thc oil but that the process has been a mess it's caught up in protest legal action you had a number of lawmakers try to deal with this with their own bills of do this with licenses or, you know, start the process over again or let the state of Georgia go get low THC oil on their own. But, you know, I heard people say, how's that even legal? The governor even stepped in. I asked the governor about it last night. And in the end, it all just kind of fell apart. And, and you had the speaker basically point his finger at the, at the, at, uh, the state Senate. So at this point, the process as is is going to continue the six licensees who've been awarded but not finalized, they're going to get their licenses. And, and the hope for advocates is they start 
you know, getting, you know, low THC oil produced, but the biggest concern is it gets tied up in more and more legal action. Now, explain to our listeners, is it possible, Raul, a special session could be called and lawmakers could be asked to come back to the state capitol? That's happened before. I've not heard any rumblings about a special session. I haven't heard anybody talking about a special session beyond, you know, the voter folks who wanted a special session um, around the 2020 election results, but not really hearing anything along those lines. And I, I don't see that really, unless something urgent happens, another incident like Hurricane Michael, mm-hmm. where there may be a necessity for something along those lines, but I'm not hearing any word of a special session at this moment. Or, and obviously nobody wants this, if there is some unusual spike related to COVID with a new variant, that would be the only reason that lawmakers could come back. In the end, the governor can call a special session for any reason. And there's actually a procedure where the lawmakers could call themselves uh, into session. But again, I'm not hearing that rumbling at all. And and, and there would have to be a specific reason. When special session is called, it is we are calling a special session for redistricting or we're calling a special mm-hmm. session for COVID. So there's going to have to be a reason that the governor is going to want to call a special session in the middle of an election year. Well, Raul, you deserve, as well as Sam Greenglass, who we'll talk to in just a moment, you all, both of you all deserve a vacation. Well done, this legislative session. And thank you so much for always taking time. We appreciate it. I understand that you are headed to Yosemite. Yep, where my phone will not work and y'all ain't going to find me. Sounds good to me, buddy. Have fun. Take (laughs) care. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, while Raul is headed to Yosemite, joining me now with more is WABE's other politics reporter, Sam Greenglass, who we think got some rest. Sam, welcome. How you holding up? Uh, I'm not sure if I got some rest. Maybe it was a fitless couple of hours of sleep that I definitely had some dreams about bills on the floor. And uh, I hope tonight goes better than that. (laughs) You had dreams, my man. (laughs) Oh, you know, it's bad when you're dreaming about the Georgia state legislature. You need help. I'm going to say yes, but no. But let's begin here. As you reported for WABE News, Republican lawmakers passed that bill potentially paving the way for restrictions on transgender kids playing school sports. As you put it, the maneuver shocked Democrats who thought the measure was dead. Give the details here. So I just want to make clear that this bill is weaker than what Republicans had originally hoped for. And honestly, that's something we didn't even understand as reporters in the press gallery because the votes happened so darn quick. Lawmakers didn't have the bill text to look at, and neither did we. Um, you know, some of our fellow reporters are kind of scurrying out uh, into the hallway to try and get their hands on a paper copy of this amendment that had been tacked inside. Um, this is not an outright ban on trans girls from go- girl sports teams like we had seen earlier in the session. It basically kicks the decision to youth sports associations like the Georgia High School Association and says that they may look into an enact policies if they wish that ban these kids from the sports team that matches their gender identity. And uh, as Raul mentioned earlier, this provision basically got shoved into another Mm -hmm. controversial education bill. That's the so-called divisive concepts bill that deals with how race is taught in schools. And House Speaker David Rostin called this bill a compromise. Yeah, um, this was one of the I think maybe the first thing he got asked about after lawmakers shredded their bills into confetti and cleared out of the chambers and he held a little press gathering outside in the antechamber. Um, Ralston said that he thinks it makes sense for this decision to be with uh, these youth sports associations and he hopes that they'll make the right decision is what he said. Um, Clearly you can kind of see this push pull going on in the background between the right wing of the party who wanted this done and also the acknowledgement of the pushback it would cause and the pain it would receive across the aisle and potentially even in the general election, too. Mm-hmm. You spoke with Democrat Senator Sally Harrell. Here's what she told you. I, I, I don't think you want to hear the words that I'm feeling right now, um, because this this happened in a whirlwind in the last 20 minutes of the evening without legislators even being able to see and review the bill. Um, that's just wrong. And I'm going to have to tell my child that that's how our government works. Sam, what's the backstory here with Senator Harrell? 
Yeah, so just a little bit of context. Um, Senator Harrell is the mom of a trans kid, and she actually spoke up about this earlier in the session during another vote on the original bill. Uh, it passed anyways, even back then. Um, and Harrell told us that she and other lawmakers were floored. They thought this measure was dead, as you mentioned. Um, there is lots of anger over how this bill was shoved through around midnight with no debate, no time to even read what was in the bill. And uh, while this bill is, is definitely weakened, um, there's a fear uh, that Senator Harold talked about that it will hurt the few kids who this affects no matter what by making them feel unwelcome and you know, like they don't belong in their schools, their communities, their sports teams. Um, you know, Democrats have tried all session to shape or stimmy bills that they didn't like. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, Republicans are fully in the driver's seat in this legislature, and they're being increasingly tugged to the right by the threat of primary challenges. Hmm. Sam, I take it the stun reaction. We're actually going to have uh, State Senator Kim Jackson join the program following our segment. But I take it the stun reaction was what a lot of Democrats were feeling. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you even into this morning, you've seen Democrats posting on Twitter, kind of trying to process what happened in the last few minutes of the session last night. I think I've seen a few of these posts where you can tell there's like almost a little bit of trauma that people are still trying to grapple with. Um, you know, there was a lot of these controversial votes that were expected. You know, critical uh, the critical race theory bill was vetted and had hearings all throughout the session. Democrats knew that this was going to pass this transports bill. It was kind of a surprise both to uh, legislators, I think, and to reporters, too. And Sam, it is anticipated that Governor Kemp will sign this because it's tacked on to an education measure as well. So that's the, no surprise that he will sign this. Yeah, but also, you know, he made a late night plea in both chambers when he came physically to speak to legislators to pass both tax cuts and legislation about trans kids and youth sports. You know, this was a priority in his state of the state address. He's real big, big on promises made, promises kept. But honestly, I am still a little struck by this one, uh, despite the pushback and nearly getting everything else that Kemp wanted in the session that he didn't just let this one go, um, rather than getting it shoved in and really encouraging people to, to pass it so late in the, in the evening. Mm. Let's talk elections, because it wouldn't be Georgia without some type of election law that's controversial. What's going on? Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, so this has been kind of a roller coaster ride of a topic this session. First, there was a 40 page bill and then there was a two page bill and then there was a 15 page bill and then it was shoved into somewhere else. So like it has been like trying to herd cats, trying to figure out what exactly was happening with election reform this session. Uh, in the end, it was a very narrow measure that passed just one provision. Um, another case of shoving a single provision into an unrelated bill and passing it uh, just before midnight and the end of the session. And what that changes is that it gives the Georgia Bureau of Investigation the power to initiate election cases on their own. You know, they're involved with election cases already, but currently they have to be referred from the Secretary of State or the Election Board's office. Now they can just jumpstart them on their own and have the subpoena power when they do that. Um, there are a bunch of other changes that were originally proposed, um, but after testimony from election officials, those all got scrapped. Um, but Democrats still worry that this bill, no other bill will ever be enough to con those claims about election integrity, that candidate that people are making on the on the right of the political spectrum, um, as long as candidates are still touting those false claims on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also worries that involving this, the GBI more directly could allow a future governor who appoints the head of the GBI to interfere inappropriately in an election. So I think some relief that it is a slim down measure, but still um, some concerns about what the potential outcomes of this will be. And finally, Sam, what are you hearing regarding either this measure or the transgender sports bill in terms of being challenged through the courts? You know, if you asked me this a few weeks ago, I would have said, yes, these, you know, some of these provisions are certainly headed to court. But the provisions are so narrow now, I'm at least unclear exactly what the challenge would be, at least yet. Um, short of litigation, I think these changes certainly left a bad taste in the mouths of Democrats who, you know, as Raul mentioned just earlier in the day, had been cheering alongside Republicans for the signing of this bipartisan mental health overhaul. 
So, you know, I don't know, so much in this session, I think, has set the tone for the rest of 2022, uh, when candidates, you know, are going to hit the campaign trail in, dare I say it, one of the most important political states in the nation. So I think what we've seen over these last three months, we are not done with, and it is only a curtain raiser for what is ahead over these next few months into the end of the year. Absolutely. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the program. Uh, Raul's headed to Yosemite. Where are you going? Decatur? <laughs> uh, still working the rest of this week, uh, but I have uh, my sister is visiting this weekend and some family. So I'm excited to get a little bit of time off and show them around uh, my new city. OK, where are you going to show them? <laughs> uh, Decatur? You know, so much. Uh, so much of my life when I need to like, uh, you know, decompress after a day of multiple hearings over Zoom is uh, up and down the belt line. So I think that is where I want to start. Sam, come on now. Don't just do the belt line. <laughs> we'll branch out. I promise. Sam Greenglass survives his first year reporting on the Georgia General Assembly and does a great job keeping our WABE listeners informed along with Raul Bally, our politics reporter, dynamic duo team. Sam, thank you so much for always taking the time. We appreciate it. Reyes, it has been great to spend all this time with you. I really appreciate it. All right, now. And Closer Look continues here on WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier in the last minutes of the legislative session, Republican lawmakers passed a bill potentially paving the way for restrictions on transgender kids playing school sports. As we reported, the maneuver shocked some Democrats who thought the measure was actually dead. Well, join me now with reaction and to give more about how all this went down, Democrat State Senator Kim Jackson. Thank you so much for taking the time. Senator, I know it was a late night. Hey, thanks for having me, Rose. It's good to be here. You know, your fellow state Senator Sonia Halperin tweeted this, quote, shenanigans with no bill in front of us and a refusal to print it out. Republicans just passed a House substitute that we hear may include the language that targets transgender girls in sports. Close quote. What happened here? Can you take our listeners through? You all had no idea. Yeah, so we were um, around 11.30, 11.45 at night, uh, thinking that we had kind of made it through. And I received 100 text messages from advocates in the hallway saying, hey, um, there's been an amendment that includes the transgender kids in sports, but nobody could get their hands on the amendment. Um, and we were closing in on that 12 o'clock hour when uh, our leader made an appeal to have the amendment printed so that we could actually see the bill that we were be that was being voted on. The person who called for the bill never mentioned what was in it. Um, I mean, it was really a mess and not how you want to see democracy happen. Um, but it was governing happening in the middle of the night, basically. And this kind of slipped in. You have obviously you you've seen been a part of so many different scenario, scenarios and things that have happened. Many people say, well, this is what happens on, on signing die. We know that sometimes other measures get stuffed into on the back or tacked on, as they, they say, tacked on to another measure. But because this was so controversial and so high profile, uh, you feel like that this was just an attempt by Republicans to get this through knowing that it would be viewed at viewed with a little side eye to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's funny. I remember looking in the eyes of a young man. He was he's a teenager who's been advocating for months to try to kill this bill. He looked me in the eyes and he was like, Senator, it's coming to you. And I was like, there's no way we don't have time. It's 1155. And and it still came through. I mean, we really did think that we had defeated it. And so, um, yes, I think we're always trying to be on guard for last minute things. But this was particularly um, this was a particular shenanigan that none of us had anticipated. House Speaker David Rawson says, you know, he called this maybe a compromise. How do you see it? I think that's probably fair um, from his perspective. I, I think it's important to note. So what this does is it puts the decision back in the hands or it puts the ball back on the court of the high school associations. And heretofore, the high school association has had a rule around that and it has gone back to the schools. And so if the high school association kind of stands by what they've done um, and allows individual schools to make these determinations, a lot of our trans girls will be safe. Um, so it'll be interesting to see 
how the high school associations kind of can manage and handle these situations. Um, but I, I understand how he could say that it's a compromise because it is not an outright ban, um, which is what we had been fighting all, all, all year long. And, and actually what we did defeat was an outright ban. Earlier in this session, you took to the well and you described your own experience of coming out. You talked about how you, you viewed that you and others would view this would impact trans kids if it is a, a, a weaker version of this. But you heard what Sally Harrell had to say, uh, you know, a fellow lawmaker and how she has to go home and explain this to her, her child. This is this is how we work here. Yeah, I mean, we know that anytime we threaten to um, pull back any access for children in terms of having access to sports that match their gender identity, the conversations alone can be devastating. Um, and so we want to be sensitive to that and to make sure that any trans children who are hearing about these conversations know that there are people who are fighting for you, um, people who love you, and who are really trying to work to make sure that there's a place for you in your school sports. Um, the other piece that I, I often like to highlight is that this is also often an attack on young girls who are cisgendered, who happen to be faster, who happen to be stronger or taller than another girl, because it calls into question are you girl enough? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always get concerned as having been that young girl who could lift as much as the boys football team um, in high school, you know, I worry about those cisgender girls having to prove, and how do you do this? Like having to prove that you're a girl, um, right? So this is dangerous, not just for trans girls. This is dangerous for all girls in terms of having to conform with some notions of femininity um, that aren't necessarily rooted in any science. Have you spoken with some of your Republican colleagues about this? Yeah, you know, I've talked to my colleagues about it. And the, the truth is that this is a, I think this is a complicated issue for many people. Um, and I, I keep trying to appeal to them around, we're talking about children. Um, I understand, I mean, our college um, sports have made some decisions and, and put some rules in the place about how you can compete on a collegiate level mm -hmm. and even on an Olympic level. I mean, I was a national athlete. I, I played for the national team. And so I get that. But when we're talking about kids, you know, you're talking about 12, 13 year olds. And um, we need to make sure that we um, we need to make sure that we put the most children who are at most risk um, in the forefront. And those are our trans children. And to be clear, so folks understand, we're talking about in terms of organized sports and sports leagues. We're not talking about if the kids want to play kickball, you know, in the schoolyard or anything like that. We're talking, you're talking about organized sports, sports leagues. This is also AAU as well. Well, so AAU, um, I think, often is governed by a different um, body, mm -hmm. but uh, but yes, it, it would impact AAU ball um, because oftentimes the, those coaches are playing and coaching and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so there's some interesting intermix between AAU ball and the high, and Georgia High School Association. Um, so. Again, we don't actually know what the high school association is going to rule on this, right? They're going to have a, an oversight team that may say, let's just let things stand as they are. Um, but this could have an impact across the board. And what do you make this being tacked on to an education bill that was already also controversial as well? Right. Well, at one point I, I said that the, they're really putting at risk their their key piece of legislation here, um, because if they hadn't amended their cons uh, the divisive concept bill is what they called it, um, it wouldn't have had to come back to the Senate. So um, I think that's what made it clear, though, that they were very committed to making sure that it um, went through the divisive concept language. It mm -hmm. did get watered down over time, um, but it's still a problematic bill that um, will ultimately we'll see how teachers have to deal with it in the coming year, but I think that it will cause a lot of teachers um, some strife around how they navigate uh, this. It's basically an anti-CRT bill. You heard Sam Greenglass, our politics reporter, talk about uh, so many of these measures are tied to it's a big, massive election year. We know that. And unfortunately, as you've said, and so many people said, uh, politics at the intersection of people, and sometimes it can be a little bit, you know, Cluttered messy. or messy, <laughs> your word. Uh, you use that, you subscribe to that in terms of this legislative session with some of these measures. 
That's right. You know, the lieutenant governor gave his farewell speech, Jeff Duncan, and and he talked about how it is increasingly more difficult to campaign in a way that um, is not divisive and in a way that uh, does not draw and create um, create these huge factions where we cannot um, talk to each other. And um, he was really saddened by that and was very clear that the solution, though, is that we have to learn how to come together and work together. But right now, we're just extraordinary fractured. And so in order to play to his base, um, Governor Kemp, he pushed through some policies that are harmful and hurtful to one group of people in order to, you know, get votes from another group of people. And I think that's really unfortunate and ultimately will be harmful for all of Georgia. Speaking of Lieutenant uh, Governor Jeff Duncan, who is not seeking re-election, how would you assess his leadership while you've been a state lawmaker as a senator? You know, I think he's really tried to put when he talks about putting policy in front of politics, he's he's really tried to do that. And he's been a member of a party, however, that hasn't really believed in that concept. And so this is how we end up with a number of these really divisive policies um, showing up and being pushed forward that, that really are strongly political. But I think in his heart, he has been committed to trying to say, let's put the people of Georgia good policy first. Um, and, and unfortunately, the train of the Republican train is just too strong for him to have held off by himself. You do not have a challenger, I believe, so you don't have to hit the campaign trail. Uh, how happy are you about that? I have a primary challenger. Primary I, do challenge, have a general, yeah. I do have a general challenger, so we will be hitting the campaign trail. But I, I do feel like I can at least sleep for the next two weeks, and that's a gift. <laughs> and you also have a podcast, I believe, it has to do with goats and government, right? That's right. It's called God, Goats, and Government, where we talk about uh, the intersections of my life, right? I am a priest, I am a goat farmer, and I also happen to work in government. So it's always a good, um, fun time to kind of talk about how those three parts of my life intersect with each other. Sounds like a movie. Democratic State Senator Kim Jackson, thank you so much for taking time as always. We appreciate, appreciate you and all the lawmakers who made time this legislative session. Thank you. Thanks, Rose. It's always great to be with you. And Closer Look continues now here on WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. So now what? As we've been discussing, the legislative session is over for now. Let's get ready for campaign ads, tweets, and debates, and all the good stuff. Atlanta-based political strategist Fred Hicks is beside himself as he lives and breathes this stuff, I think, for this time of year. Election season, Fred, welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. It's your time of year, pal. You love this stuff, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Let's begin here because you always love to give listeners a number. Give us a number. How much campaign money is going to about to start flowing now in Georgia from the two major parties? Well, I think for the May 24th primary, if you count hard money, that is money that comes from the candidates or is spent by the candidates. And soft money, that's money that's spent by PACs, independent groups and things of that nature. I think you'll probably see somewhere in the 75 to $100 million being spent, the majority of that being on the Republican side, uh, particularly with the race for governor, and then on the Senate side between uh, Gary Black and Herschel Walker. But you will see a fair amount spent on the Democratic side as well. I think somewhere between, uh, maybe I'll lower it a little bit and say between 50 and $100 million for the May 24th primary. And then after that, when we get into the fall, that's when you're going to see a ton of money being spent. Wow. (laughs) Is that for so you mentioned just these major races? I mean, how much can the for the legislative session, which is over now, state lawmakers, are they going to be able to get any of that uh, money? How much of that will be for their races? Like a couple bucks? Well, a couple of dollars here and there, maybe a a box of chicken or something like that. But but no, seriously. (laughs) The key thing for voters to remember this year is that every statewide election is up for uh, on the ballot this year, as well as all of the legislative seats. So you will vote for your state representative, you vote for your state senator, you vote for governor, up and down the line on that. And for many people due to redistricting, they will vote for a person for the first time this, this go round. So this is uh, going to be very important in election. And if I may, I'd like to tell, remind everyone to go to the My Voter page on the Secretary of State's website 
to uh, to find out Double check. what exactly and yeah. for whom exactly they can vote. Right, because redistricting took place. So this is a little bit different now than we had before, than you had last time you voted. That is good information to know. That's for everybody, regardless of your political party affiliation. Go to my governor page and, and check out who you're voting for. Of course, we know the big statewide races appears now, that big one, that gubernatorial race, it appears Folks will say that it could be a rematch between Governor Brian Kemp and Democrat Stacey Abrams. And I say it appears because never say never. What's been your take so far on the Republican side of this race? Well, I think we, we expected a bit more fireworks a few a few months ago when David Perdue entered the race. But as of right now, it looks like things are pretty much uh, uh, like the Governor Kemp was able to achieve his legislative agenda. And we're starting to see him really pick up speed. And we're seeing uh, former Senator Perdue really kind of struggle to find his messaging and find his footing and a driver wedge and to really offer a value proposition. Now, that's not to say that it's going to be a blowout. I think most people feel like uh, it'll be maybe 51, 49, 52, 48, something like that. Uh, maybe even 53, 47 in favor of Governor Kemp. But uh, that's going to be a brutal, very brutal primary because former President Trump figures to be back again. He was here, what, a week or two ago doing a rally, and we think he'll do that again to try to uh, salvage his ticket. So let's, that's going to be interesting and exciting, but it does seem like Governor Kemp has the momentum. Well, let's talk about that because now we're hearing, I've been reading all these reports that Georgia is the key state here, the key swing state this year. You you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, I, I said last year, I think we talked about this a little bit um, towards the end of the year, that 2022 in Georgia is really the launch pad for whatever is going to happen in 2024. And by whatever is going to happen, I mean, whether or not Donald Trump is able to successfully mount a, uh, a return to the national stage as the as the Republican nominee for president, I think it also was going to determine uh, what kind of politics we see in 2023 and 24 as both parties will recalibrate at the end of this year. And let us not forget, right now, the U.S. Senate is split 50-50. Mm -hmm. And so there are a few key races across the country, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Pennsylvania, but of course, right here in Georgia with our own very own Senator Warnock, uh, these races will determine the balance of power with the Senate. And if people are wondering why that's important, we're living it right now when we look at the confirmation process going on for the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as many other things. So again, once we get through this primary, we're going to see a lot happen, a lot of money spent, because what happens, particularly what happens in Georgia in 2022, is going to set the agenda for the country over the next two years. Well, let's talk about the Republican primary for U.S. Senate for Georgia. You know, we keep hearing a lot about Herschel Walker, of course, former UGA, you know, icon, uh, Gary Black, you know, current Georgia agriculture, you know, uh, commissioner of agriculture. What, what are you hearing with this? What do you see with this race, Fred? Well, I'll be interested to see what the polling says in a week or two, which is what I think we'll start seeing the first sort of reliable polling. At last glance, the last look, uh, Herschel Walker pre-session was, was running away with it, pun intended and unintended, uh, with about 70 or 75 percent of the Republican primary vote. Again, he is, a, as you mentioned, a UJ icon, and he also has the backing of former President Trump. So those two things in a year when Georgia is really doing quite well uh, in sports between the Braves and the, and the Dogs, uh, those things really buoy him. Now, Gary Black is kind of a traditional Republican, right? Georgia's an agricultural state, mm -hmm. so you figure the Commissioner of Agriculture would do well. He's uh, he's liked by persons on both sides of the aisle. He, uh, he's been around for a long time, things like that. So if there's someone who can mount a challenge, it would be Gary Black. But again, he has a lot to overcome right now and, and name ID and, and resources that Herschel Walker enjoys. But if, if you take a look at the most recent campaign financing here in terms of what the candidates have been reporting. I mean, Raphael Warnock is at the top, period. I mean, he's got well over $50 million. And then Herschel Walker, mm -hmm. over 10. But Gary Black was in fourth last time I checked. Overall, he was behind Latham Sadler. So I don't know. You expect, you expect that to pick up? Because he's got to get some, some money rolling in here. Well, he's got to. And to be honest with you, I thought he might not qualify just because so much uh, momentum has gone, has, has fallen in line behind Herschel Walker. Listen, one of the biggest holdouts uh, on Herschel Walker was Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. the minority leader, the, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. 
And the early part of this year, he dropped his opposition to Herschel Walker and got behind him. And what that means, you're talking about a flood of hard money and soft money into Herschel Walker. And because Gary Black is also the person who can give him the biggest challenge, we're seeing with that, that that also is going to dry up Gary Black's fundraising. And I think that's why he was in fourth place. Let's talk about the power of, you know, it being if you're at the top and then everyone just voting down ballot here. Stacey Abrams, of course, is going to be at the top. Well, you know, Warnock, but Stacey Abrams really, in terms of statewide races, is it a given that Democrats should just assume that folks are just going to go Democrat, 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 Democrat? Oh, absolutely not. Listen, we saw in 2018 that Stacey Abrams received the most votes of any Democrat in history. Um, and then we saw the next on the next in the line, uh, Sarah, Migo, Sarah Riggs Amico, received fewer votes than uh, most of the other statewide elections. And so you can't assume that one vote for Stacey is going to be one vote for each person on the Democratic ticket. And I think that all the candidates realize that and they're working really hard to build their own name ID uh, right now and try to get people to pull and vote down the ticket. But when you look at that, when you look at the votes, you see that there's there's definitely ticket splitting. Uh, but ticket splitting in the form of whether or not they vote, not people moving back and forth across parties. And so I think for Democrats, you certainly have to to figure out how to get people, particularly people who are, um, who are who are turning out specifically because of Stacey, how to get them to continue to vote down the line for lieutenant governor, SOS, and all these other positions. I so it's going to be really interesting. And for a moment, I want to shift for a moment or two and just talk about that lieutenant governor, governor's race, because early on, people are like, eh, you know, I'm not going to pay much attention to this, but obviously it is a big deal here. What are you seeing or what are you hearing so far about the candidates in this race? Well, you have about 14 people who qualified for that between Democrats and Republicans. And a lot of folk, right. Um, so a ton of people, a ton of people. When you look at the last disclosure, Charlie Bailey, who was on the Democratic side, who was running for the attorney general until the early part of this year, got the most amount of money, right? So that was uh, that was the end of January disclosure. So he, he dropped out of the AG's race, moved over to the lieutenant governor's race, and had about 500000 or so that he, he was able to transfer over with, with most of that still on hand. Um, and then I think second on the list at that time of people who declared um, was Eric Allen out of Cobb County. Mm-hmm. And then you also, of course, have Renita Shannon. And then you have uh, Derek Jackson on the Democratic side. Well, you also have some, some names, though, too, that, that people may fam- be familiar with. You have Tyrone Brooks Jr., uh, former Atlanta right. City Council member at Kwanzaa Hall, who had a brief, brief, and I do mean brief, stint in Congress. Names have been added to this as well. Well, right. And they weren't there in the last disclosure. And that's one thing to, to keep in mind uh, for people who are looking at money as an indicator of support is that Tyrone Brooks Jr., neither Tyrone Brooks Jr. Or, or Kwanzaa Hall were in the race at the time of the of the last disclosure report. Now, there's another disclosure report that's due at the end of this month. Well, that's, that's that goes through the end of this month and will be published uh, or public right around Mother's Day. So May 7th, 8th, 9th, uh, that Monday or so. So we'll have a good sense then, but that's also 15 days before the election. So it won't tell us a whole lot, but um, the race has changed a little bit. And with so many people on the Democratic side, that certainly figures to go into a, into a runoff. Now, on the other side, on the Republican side, where you have Burt Jones and Butch Miller, mm-hmm. uh, that is going to be a very, very, very interesting race. Uh, to me, just as interesting as what happens with the Purdue-Kemp race, because mm-hmm. you have, you have uh, again, President Trump, former President Trump, is lined up behind someone, but both candidates are 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 beating the Trump drum and beating the election was stolen, repeating the big lie, that kind of stuff. There and both are well healed. One coming from Middle Georgia money, other one coming from uh, the car dealership money. So that race is going to be really interesting, and I think that people should pay attention to that for a couple of reasons. One, to see the power of the Trump endorsement, but then also I think <laughs> number two to give you a sense of to give you a sense of where the votes are in Georgia. So is middle Georgia where the vo- where the votes are in terms of determining Republican primary, or are we talking about North Georgia? So there's a lot to look at on the Republican side with the with the lieutenant governor's race. Well, and it's it, really fascinating. And I want to get to this because speaking of, of lies, in a sense, in terms of the 2020 uh, presidential election, look, one man who said it was not stolen, which is current, George Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, but who also has had some other issues, and we could spend a whole other show talking about that. 
But he's got a challenger, Jody Heiss, who I believe is is backed by Donald Trump. And then on, on the Democratic side, you've got some, some a lot of big names here. You've got D. Dawkins, Hagler, you got John Eves, you got uh, B. Wynn, you got Michael Owens. Uh, these are where? How do you see this playing out in the primary? Well, I'll tell you, you know that that the Republican primary uh, I think is really interesting. Well, the, both sides are interesting, but for different reasons. Um, when you look at this whole idea of Jody Heiss, who was in Congress, and uh, as you mentioned. He's part of the Trump slate to see what he does mm-hmm. versus the incumbent and Brad Raffensperger. That's going to be interesting uh, to see the power of the activists on the Republican side. And on the Democratic side, you really have a little bit of everything for everyone, right? So, and B, when you have, uh, she's seeking to be the first ever um, uh, uh, Asian American woman uh, to, to represent, to be on the statewide ballot. Uh, you have, and she's an in-town activist. You have D. Hagler, D. Dawkins Hagler who's the past chair of the Legislative Black Caucus, who ran previously. Uh, so, so those two have name ID. Of course, you also, as you mentioned, Michael Owens, who's recently endorsed by the Black Collective PAC, which is one of the big uh, influential Black uh, independent groups out there. And, and Michael was the past chair of the Cobb County Democratic mm-hmm. Party. And Cobb County has a lot of votes there. But then you also have John Eves, who was the chair of the Fulton County Board of, of Commissioners, um, and, I, and has some decent name ID in the metropolitan area. So uh, it's going to be really interesting, I think, on the Democratic side to see how that plays out. Now, B. Wynn has the most amount of money, mm-hmm. um, and she has she she's racked up a lot of endorsements. Uh, but then, again, again, you're going to see what I remind people and I remind candidates when they ask my opinion is that these are not regional or citywide elections. These are statewide elections. Mm-hmm. And so those endorsements and that how you spend that money It'll be really important when you look at you know you look at areas like Macon and Savannah and Columbus and places like that. Gotcha. Well, Fred, we'll have to bring you back. We'll see what happens when that primary. Fred Hicks, Atlanta-based political strategist. As always, thank you so much. We'll bring you back. Thank you. Glad to be here. And happy birthday to my son. All right. Twenty first. <laughs> Gotta give a shout out to him. Not bad. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, Lashawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder, let us know your thoughts on today's program as you often do. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as on our podcast and online because we're there. wabe.org slash closer look. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.